Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come before you now. We ask for your help as we open your word. I ask for your help. Father, I pray that as we open your word, that it will not fall on deaf ears. But you will take your word and you will plant it deep into our hearts, Father, where it will resonate within us, that it will change us, God. Lord, we confess that we need your word. We need nourishment this morning. We need a working of your grace in our life. Lord, you say that you are faithful, you're steadfast in your love, and we cling on that this morning, Father, as we open your word. Father, may we see you in a new way this morning. May we see ourselves and those around us in your world. May we see your sovereign plan of redemption. Father, may you save those among us who are wavering, those who are like a teeter-totter going one way or the other. They have not committed themselves to you. Lord, I pray that this morning you will do a miraculous work in their life, a work that only you can do. Lord, I cannot convince them. No one can convince them of truth. Only you reveal truth. I ask that you'll do that this morning, Father. Lord, as you do it for us, we pray that you'll do it for the Hong Jingtai people in China. 183,000 people lost souls who are chasing false gods, gods made of dirt and stone, gods of their own imagination. But these other religions, Father, we pray that you, in your mercy, will give them your word. Father, we have so many Bibles laying around, and this people don't even have a verse in their own language. Father, may you raise up from us, from your people, to go to the Hong Jintai and share the good news of Jesus to give them the gift of your word. Father, may translators be inspired by your spirit to write in their mother tongue so they can see for themselves the truth and they have it. Lord, we pray that Jesus will be followed, that these false gods, ones of dirt and stone, will be smashed, will be used for just rubble for to build walls and just what dirt is made for. And that they will turn away from these gods of dirt and stone and turn to the true God and worship you alone. Father, save them. Father, we pray for Pastor Rory Garza in California, this young church, Pillar 29 Palms. Father, we pray that you will do a mighty work. We pray for Pastor Roy this morning as he preaches your word, that it will not fall on deaf ears, that you will do a work with Pastor Roy through Pastor Roy to the people, that you'll build a strong body of believers in that church, and they'll reach 29 Palm and the Marines who are stationed there, Lord, and they'll go to the ends of the earth with the gospel message. Father, we pray for Pastor Vijay with Reach All Nations. We thank you for giving him a wife. We thank you for the ministry that you've given him, the work that you have given him, the calling that you have on his life. We pray that you will strengthen him, that you will strengthen his ministry, that you'll bring more brothers around him who will carry him when he's tired and weary. Father, may they look to you as their hope, as their strength. When the persecution comes against him, may they be bold in proclamation. As they suffer, may they become more bold to show the truth of your word, that nothing stands against it. Father, we pray for Pastor Rick Cookshank of Hanover Baptist Church. We pray as he preaches this morning that his words will not fall on deaf ears, 
that the gospel will be clearly spoken and those in his hearing who are not saved, that you'll use Pastor Rick to save the lost. And you'll strengthen that body as well. Lord, we love you and we pray for your Holy Spirit to guide us in this time. It's in your name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. It's on page 957 in the church Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, like always, please raise your hand and we'll bring one to you. Or if you forgot your Bible, or you don't have a Bible app on your phone, you're more than welcome to use the Bibles on the back table. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. We'll read the passage in a few minutes. It's been several months since we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians. So let me tell you where we've been and to remind you once again of the theme for 1 Corinthians. If you remember during the month of December we began our first Advent series to celebrate the birth of our Savior together as a new church. And then in the new year, the first two Sundays, we began what I hope to be an annual um, event, if you will, an annual week for us in the church. We had our first week of prayer and looking at the importance of prayer, emphasizing how necessary and needed prayer is in our church, in our families, in your life. And I pray that this year will be a year of prayer. We recognize that we can do nothing apart from the working of God in our lives. We can do nothing. Everything about our faith, everything we know about God, everything that we do that is good, anything that we desire that's holy and righteous is from God. It's a work of His Spirit. We acknowledge that here at Redeemer. And so we pray for His work in our lives and in our church. Prayer is essential, so we want to encourage each other to pray regularly and to pray more often. We can never, ever pray too much. Because everything that's needed is outside of our hands, outside of what we can do. And it's only by the working of God that it happens. And so we pray. I hope you've been encouraged to pray. This year will be a year where prayers are answered, your faith being strengthened in prayer, and lives being changed in prayer. For the last two weeks, Anton has reminded us that it's God alone who saves sinners. Every person here you look around the room, every person here, every person in your neighborhood, every person in our community, every person around the world is a sinner, the Bible says. God is very clear. There is not one person who's born without sin. Every single person is born a sinner. We all have sin, we read earlier, and that separates us from God. And we need to be saved. And we need to be saved not from our sin, we need to be saved from the judgment of our sin. And we cannot save ourselves. There's no person in the world who can save themselves. Sin is so offensive to God that only eternal judgment will satisfy the offense. He sees sin as a crime, and all mankind is guilty. Every week I post our sermons on the website, and I share them on Facebook. I try to have a short, clear, concise statement so the listener will know ahead of time what the sermon is going to be about. When I asked Anton for a summary of his statement for last week, I love his summary statement that he gave me. 
He said, God's covenant of grace, this is about last week's sermon, God's covenant of grace revealed in His promise of a Savior. Every single person is born into sin. We cannot save ourselves. And the Bible tells us that God's covenant of grace is revealed to us in the promise of a Savior. This is the gospel. This is what we are all about here at Redeemer, telling people of this promise of a Savior, the person who can save us from judgment. This was God's plan from the very beginning in the garden, Anton was telling us last week. Mark 10.45 tells us in a single verse that God kept His promise in the garden. He said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, The gospel of Jesus is happy news. When you hear that you're a sinner and there's nothing you can do, there's hopelessness that's there. But when you hear of someone who can save you, someone who can remove the sin and make you a new creature, this is happy, happy news. The happy news that God's Son became a man. He lived the perfect life that we never could, and He died the death that we deserve, taking that punishment, taking that wrath upon Himself. And according to the Scriptures, He rose from the grave triumphantly to bring you to God. If you have repented of your sin and you trust in Jesus, Jesus is bringing you to God. There is no reason to fear this judgment, this God who sees sin as a crime. You can walk safely into His presence and know what real love is and joy and peace. Anyone who repents of their sin and trust is forgiven and enjoys eternal relationship with God. There is no better news than this. Nothing else can happen in your life that compares to this. You cannot receive any good news in your life that's any better than your sins are forgiven in Jesus. That is happy, good news. Any other news you're given, no matter how great you think it is, it's like a grain of sand compared to the mountain of grace given to you in Jesus Christ. By God's grace, the wrath of God is satisfied in Jesus. And God's people now have peace and hope in Jesus Christ. And He's given us immeasurable love forever. That's the gospel. The church is brought together in this gospel to worship God because of the good news of Jesus Christ, because of what Jesus has done. The church is brought together to worship this God. The church is brought together to announce this good news from God. And this church is brought together to show this good news, to share it and to show it to the world. The happy news is shared and enjoyed together. The church church proclaims this. And as we proclaim it, we pray for fellow sinners to hear it. And by God's grace, they receive it and they repent. And they too enjoy that love and that peace with God. And that brings us to the theme of 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth to remind them to have church unity in purity, to advance this gospel of Jesus Christ. The Corinthian Christians were to live their lives together, enjoying the gospel, enjoying the benefits of being recipients of God's grace. 
of sharing the gospel, of putting others before themselves for the sake of the gospel, helping fellow believers, strengthening their faith, and then bringing others alongside of them. Sharing this good news. Caring for unbelievers and loving them with the truth of the gospel. Everything the church is about, everything we do, is all centered around this good news of Jesus Christ. And this letter that Paul wrote is written to Christians who lost sight of that. They were divided among themselves. They toyed with sin. They did not see God's holiness as their goal. They were arrogant to think that their self-importance, their critical spirits, were part of a healthy, strong church. Their focus had turned inward among themselves, and Paul called for unity in the body. This is more than having the same beliefs or getting along with one another, nor is it about having the same likes and dislikes when we gather. Unity is not about a group of people who connect well, who have the same hobbies, or who put up with each other, even the hard ones to put up with. Nor is it thinking the same way about everything. That's not unity that Paul's talking about in Corinthians. Unity in the church is about something that's outside of us that brings us together for a new life's purpose. It ties us together. It binds us together. And this is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does for the church. That's why I can go to the other side of the world and meet a fellow believer for the first time and we instantly have a bond that's closer than what I have with my own brother here. My brother who doesn't follow Jesus. I have more in common with that brother on the other side of the planet than I do my own biological brother because of our bond in Jesus. It's the gospel that unites the church. That fellow believer is my brother in Christ. It's an eternal bond that's created by the power of God. In grace, He has brought us together as a family. And we don't have to have anything else in common. We don't have to look alike. We don't have to have the same language. Our cultures are different. Our lives are even strange to one another. But our same trust in Jesus Christ for salvation binds us together and it overcomes any differences that we may have. The gospel, given in God's word, takes people who would otherwise never meet or connect in some way and creates a family relationship with them. We both are trusting the same words of God. He reveals Himself in the same way by His Spirit. It may come about differently, but God reveals Himself the same way through His Holy Spirit in accordance with His Word. That's why that brother on the other side is my brother. And it's why it's so crucial for people to know that the Bible is God's gift telling us about Himself. It's not about our lives. It's about Him and what He has done. People need to have the Bible. They need to read the Bible. They need to know the Bible. And they need to trust the God who wrote the Bible. We are unified together in the church because God has revealed Himself in the Scriptures. Jesus has purchased our redemption and the Spirit works in every believer. This is the unity that Paul is talking about. This is what he's calling the Corinthians to. This church unity. We're not a bunch of individuals who want the same things in life. We are adopted into the same family with the same Father who's transforming us into the same Son. 
That's why we here at Redeemer stress the truthfulness and the authority of the Scriptures. Because our need for the Gospel written about in the Bible is our common hope. Unity is not only knowing the Gospel, but living the Gospel together. That's church unity. Followers of Jesus Christ are to live pure lives that reflect the grace that we've been given. This not only helps our own faith, it encourages our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. When I see you choosing Christ over yourself, that motivates me to make the same decision. When I see you sharing the gospel, it inspires me to do it as well. When you take risk for Jesus, it reminds me of the eternal treasure that I have in Him. We don't live this out, though, on our own. Believers live out what we know to be true and good. And that's one of the means that God uses to grow our faith and to strengthen fellow believers. God is doing the work as we live this out. We depend on the Spirit to help us understand what God's grace has truly given us. None of us truly understand this grace that we've received. None of us know this this bond that binds us together for all eternity. We don't quite understand the fullness of what that means. This eternal bond. God's grace overcomes sin. God's grace is more powerful than any sin. God's grace opens our eyes and turns our hearts toward the beauty and the wonder and the conviction and the assurance of God. The gospel brings us together and enables us to live it out together. To be light in darkness. God does not do this to improve our lives or to give us easier lives. He does it so that His gospel will advance in the world. The working of God in our individual lives saves us. But it doesn't end there. The gospel gives us new life purpose to live out in this world. We become His people and we help others enter His kingdom. God brings them in, but we give them real life examples of recipients of His grace, of being transformed because of His grace. This is what Paul is reminding the Corinthians. This is what you and I need to hear this morning in Redeemer Church. God's grace in our life is for our salvation. And it's to have unity in the church to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. God will be worshipped and He will be adored in our church through the unity that He's given in His grace. That brings us to today's text. Idol worship and eating food offered to idols is an issue that Paul has been addressing in his letter since chapter 8. Idol worship has been contrasted against a life dedicated to Jesus. And for us, idol worship can be anything that turns our thoughts and our attention away from Christ. Don't think that idol worship is something that was done in the past. We here in the West, we have our own idols. For the Corinthians, it was an event that they were confronted with on a daily basis. Different kinds of temples all over the place, food being offered to idols, it was a daily occurrence. Many Christians today still face that. For us in the West, most of our idols cannot be seen. They are in the heart. But these idols are just as deadly. 
before the holidays, we had come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The last time we were in the book, we looked at the end of chapter 9 and the first half of chapter 10. In verses 9, 24 through 10, 5, Paul gave the motivation for living your life with Christ at the center and the gospel as your aim. Again, God's salvation, His grace given to you, saves you, cleanses you, but then gives you a new purpose in life. While you have air in your lungs, your purpose is to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is your aim. Paul talked about receiving an imperishable wreath after saying he lives for the sake of the gospel. God is not just a taskmaster. As He gives us a new life purpose to advance the gospel, He says, My servants, my children, will then receive an imperishable crown. And it's Himself. We will be fully satisfied in His presence forever. In verses 6-13, through 13, Paul gave the warning to stay focused on the gospel. We need to guard our hearts with the truth of God's grace. A divided heart loses sight of our aim. And competing priorities creep in and they fog the mind. They entice our desires. And eventually, the warning is, a divided heart, if left unchecked, will ruin you. Paul pointed back to the Old Testament during the Exodus when the Israelites became lax and their sinful cravings warred against their trust in God. They had seen God work in magnificent ways, miraculous, wonderful ways. He delivered them out of bondage. He was bringing them into the promised land and they began to complain and they disobeyed. And their heart, the sinful cravings in their heart came rising up and they looked to themselves. In verses 6 and 7, Paul said, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. He then ended the passage in verse 13 by saying, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What we now see in our passage this morning, verses 14 to 22, is that God is zealous for our devotion. God is zealous for your devotion. And unless you cling to Him, you will chase your own idols. God is zealous for your devotion, and unless you cling to Him, you will chase your idols. Clinging to Him is believing in Him alone for salvation. Nothing else saves you. It means trusting that only He satisfies the desires in your heart. It means following Him only. Only Jesus do you follow on the path of righteousness, forsaking everything else in this world as lesser value. It's our hearts wanting what we know in our head to be true. The connection between what we know in one hand and what we desire on the other, coming together and clinging to Jesus, seeing the reality is Jesus. That's what I mean when I say clinging to Him. Another way to state it is this. Flee from your idols in your heart and run to the security of Jesus and never, ever leave. We cannot have it both ways. Being a Christian is more than just accepting facts and living how we want. Believing in Jesus is submitting to and following Jesus. We live out what our heart desires. 
We can say all day long that we trust in Jesus and that we want to be with Him, but your heart governs what you do. What's important to us comes from the heart, not in the words we say. God doesn't want empty words. He saves all of you, heart, soul, mind, and your body. This is what Paul is talking about in our passage this morning. If you will, please stand with me as I read God's Word, and we'll see this in the text. Verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Amen. Please be seated. Lord, help us to see your grace in your word and our desperate need of you. Amen. In verse 14, we have the command, very clear, flee from idolatry. This is what Paul has been leading up to since chapter 8. Flee from it. Run from it. Avoid it. Don't look back at it. When temptation rises in your heart, and it will, you will have temptation that will rise in your heart to worship something else. When that happens, immediately turn to Christ and remember His sacrifice. Flee from idolatry. This is the same type of exhortation that Paul gave back in chapter 6, verse 18, when he said, flee from sexual immorality. Both of these, fleeing from sexual immorality, fleeing from idol worship, both of these are a purity issue. It's purity in the heart. What do you want? And that comes from the heart. We're not being told to simply not do it. We're told run from it. Have nothing to do with it. Your heart is so easily swayed My heart is so easily swayed. When I'm tempted by my own sin, if I dwell on it, or if I ignore its alluring, it becomes attractive to me. And I give in, and I want more of it. God knows this. That's why He says, flee from it. Apart from the grace given through the sacrifice of Jesus, none of us would be able to stand against the current and the torment Of our own sin. And God says, flee from idols. Without God's grace, sin is a hundred foot tidal wave coming upon you, and your heart is like a piece of paper in front of it. Sin will just rise up and just overtake you without God's grace. But in God's grace, sin is a rubber hose beating against a titanium steel chest that surrounds you. And you can rest safely inside because you're protected from it. And part of that protection, God says, flee. And that's how you stay protected. Paul then proceeds to give three examples in our passage to appeal to the Corinthians. For us to understand, to consider... And know that we follow Christ alone. Nothing else in this world. So flee from idols. 
that our lives are his and no one else's. And there is no middle ground. You cannot worship Jesus today and tomorrow worship your idols. It doesn't work that way. We are either in Christ and our lives are centered on him, resting in his work that he's done for us, or we're not. And evil takes a foothold in our lives and we are in a precarious position before God. So the command in our passage, flee from idols. And then he gives three examples. The first one is seen in verses 16 and 17. Here, Paul looks to the Lord's Supper. The bread, the breaking of the bread symbolizes the body of Christ and is broken for his people. The cup is a symbol of Jesus' blood that's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Christians take the Lord's Supper in thankfulness. That's what he means by the cup that we bless. We don't bless the cup as in do something. We are thanking him. We give a blessing. That's what it means. We are thanking God for what the Lord's Supper really means. So when Paul says the cup of blessing that we bless, he means the cup that we take in thankfulness to God. The benefits for the believer is because Christ's blood is remembered and then it's drank in thankfulness. So taking the Lord's Supper, it's an expression of faith that Jesus has won a new life for us on the cross. Participation with Christ in the Lord's Supper is an outward expression of what we believe to be true. It's an outward expression of an internal fellowship with God. We are participating in Christ. We are participating in what Christ has won. He's the one who won the benefit. He has won your salvation, and now you get to participate in that salvation. And we remember that as we take the Lord's Supper. We benefit from His sacrifice. His sacrifice is what establishes Your communion with God. Sometimes the Lord's Supper is called communion. What we're talking about is that communion that we have with God because of what Jesus has done. It renews our covenantal relationship with God. And we join fellow believers in sharing this mutual bond that we have. What Christ won for me on the cross, if you repent of your sins and trust... It's for you as well. That's the bond that we have in Jesus. And this is something the world does not have. That is what separates us from the world. We take the bread together and only believers share in the Lord's Supper. Paul is asking this as a rhetorical question. He expects the Corinthians and this morning, you believers... He expects you to know the answer. Is it not participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not participation in the body of Christ? In other words, how can we renew our relationship with God on Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper and then return to an old life in the next? Is this a new life in Christ that you participate in or is it not? It's a rhetorical question. If God has saved you, you have a new life in Christ that separates you from the world. By faith, believers take the Lord's Supper and remember our union with Christ that was brought to us by God's grace. Our identity now is in Christ, not anything else in the world. Don't skirt with anything that mars the identity or that blurs your identity with Christ. The second example is in verse 18. Paul, again, just like in the beginning of the chapter, he refers back to the Old Testament. Separation from the world and identity with God has not changed since the Old Testament. Eating animals offered in sacrifice to God was how God's people in the Old Testament drew near to God and were accepted. It's the same way. The sacrificed food was not just regular food, but it was an entering into fellowship with God. 
It was communion with God. Covenant with God was sealed by eating the sacrifice. Eating the food recognized the holy, the just, the powerful, and the gracious nature of God. And saying, God, you cleanse me. I am yours. I am part of your people. That's what the Israelites did in the Old Testament. And this is what Christians do in the New Testament because of Christ. He is the sacrifice. We take the Lord's Supper. Jesus even said, when you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, there's communion there. That's not a literal eating and drinking. It's a communing with him. It's a remembering of who he is. And that Jesus brings you into communion with God. God has not changed anything from the Old Testament to the New. Jesus just fulfills now what we cannot. People in the Old Testament fellowshiped with God by God allowing them to eat food that were sacrificed to Him. God's gracious blessing and fellowship with Him has not changed. The third example is in verses 19 and 20. Paul uses a third rhetorical question. Please look with me in verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul is saying, don't misunderstand my examples. Idols in themselves hold absolutely no power over you. They are nothing. Food offered to idols in Paul's day was nothing. The idols today, they are nothing. They hold absolutely no power over you. There's nothing mystical or spiritual about idols. But what they represent is pure evil. They rob God of the glory that He's due. He is to be desired, not what we think that idol will give us. God is to be desired. He is to be worshipped. He is to be seen as our treasure, not that idol. There's a spiritual significance to everything we do. Nothing in this life is purely physical or purely spiritual. The temptations for sin that arise within us, they have spiritual consequences. If we hold fast to Christ, if we flee our idols, we trust in His saving work, then our heart is renewed. It's refreshed, it's strengthened by being a recipient of God's work in us, in His grace. When we experience God's grace, we flee from the idols We're strengthened, witnessing him overcome our temptation and replacing it with his goodness and his joy. But if we don't turn to Christ, if we don't flee from idols, if we give our idols any attention, then our sin rises up and it wears us down. We feel guilty and unconfessed sin drains us. It's like a cancer in the soul. And if we become lazy and defiant towards our sin, it creates horrible consequences in our lives. There are real spiritual dark forces that don't want you to know and to enjoy the peace of God. Don't be deceived in thinking that other things that war for your affection are insignificant. Now look with me, please, at verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? It is impossible, in other words, to chase idols and to enjoy peace with God. God's grace nullifies any supposed worth of anything that's vying For your desire. God will not allow you to have both. He values his grace, his glory too much. 
God is either the most precious one in your life or he's not in your life. That is what Paul is telling us. No one can worship God and participate in any other kind of worship. If you will, please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 32, beginning in verse 16. It's on page 174 in the church Bible. Deuteronomy 32, verse 16. This passage is part of the Song of Moses. It's a warning after Paul has, or excuse me, Moses has written down everything he was told to write down. It's then a warning that Moses gave to the Israelites. Deuteronomy 32, verse 16, it begins. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, who your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Now look with me down at verse 45. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of the law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long. Folks, nothing has changed. This morning, you and I need to take to heart all the words that Paul has written down. We need to teach our children. We need to help them be careful to submit to Christ and to follow his ways. We need to teach them to flee from idols. It's not just words. Lives depend on this. By these words, we shall live for all eternity and enjoy God's presence. This life, with all its good things and even the bad, does not compare to what awaits the Christian in glory. For those who flee idols and rest in Christ, there is such sweet joy waiting for you. And you experience it today when you flee. Now from this text, we can embrace four truths. Let me go through them quickly. Number one. What Jesus has done on the cross is more powerful and more glorious than any sin. When we repent and trust in him, his power works in us and it overcomes the sin. We participate in his resurrecting power. He resurrects us from being dead in sin and brings us into new life in Christ. This life is eternal and is forever satisfying. Christ becomes our identity and we become his people with a new life purpose to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our lives become tools for his grace to work, to be seen by others. Others see his grace at work in us as he transforms us into the image of his son. We are living testimonies of his saving power. Know this. And live this. Number two. We are told to flee from idolatry. God knows what you can handle and he knows what you can't. And all of us are told, flee from idols. No one can withstand it. Your heart cannot withstand the enticing nature of idols. Idols are still here and your heart knows all of them. They are those things that interfere with your relationship with Christ. Flee from them and rest in Jesus, the rock. Number three, we do not live in isolation. Paul talks a lot about community in this passage. If you look at verses 14 and 15, Paul's talking to the whole church. In verse 16, the bread that we break In verse 17, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. In verse 18, Paul points to the people of Israel 
as an example. Then verses 20 and 21, the you that's mentioned there is plural you. Church unity in purity to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ happens by God's grace when God's people look out for one another and we help one another. Our relationship with God is deeply, deeply personal and is also widely shared with brothers and sisters. Those of us in Christ have the same Spirit working in us. We have the same God working on our behalf and the same God keeping us. Together we show the world that God is worthy, not of just one person's faith, but a whole group, a whole body in everyone's. We need to get to know each other well enough to speak truth into each other's lives and to help each other flee the idols in our hearts. God has designed it that every Christian should walk alongside other Christians. To do this, it's got to be more than just a Sunday gathering. This is the Lord's day. It's a very important time that God's people gather and we corporately worship God. The rest of the week, we rest in His grace, we trust in His providence, and we look for ways to connect with one another, to build one another up and work on helping others as well to enjoy this peace and hope that we have. So it's not just about me. It's not just about us. It's what God has done in me helps you and vice versa. It helps me. And then together, we don't just focus on each other. We go outside and we share this gospel, this good news. And that leads to the fourth truth. There are people right here in our community that are worshiping idols. Most of them likely don't know it. They don't call it idol worship, but that's what it is. They worship created things. They give to things of this world what rightly belongs to God. They are in direct path of His eternal judgment for that. They need saving. Only by God's grace is anyone justified and forgiven. And may it be so that God would use you as an instrument of grace to open your neighbor's eyes that they are worshiping a false god. They need to turn to the true God. For this to happen, you need to be in their life. God has placed you in people's lives already. Who do you know that needs to hear this truth? Who do you know that needs to discover the truth of the gospel? Who do you know that needs to grow in the gospel? All of us are part of groups and communities outside of the church. As you flee from the idols that rise up in your heart, may you not flee from the commission to share the good news of Jesus Christ. He deserves people's worship. This week, may you go back to that person or to those people and share this good, happy news. May you live this good, happy news. And may God use you to free others from their idols. Let's pray.